Welcome to the MedTech Talent Lab, the number one catalyst for advancing careers and building high-performance teams. Sponsored by the Anthony Michael Group, helping companies secure in-demand talent in regulatory affairs, quality, clinical, engineering, R&D, and other areas for medical device, digital health, diagnostics, and other organizations across the U.S. life sciences sector. Here's your host, Mitch Robbins. All right, welcome back to another episode here on the MedTech Talent Lab podcast. I'm your host, Mitch Robbins, the founder and managing director here at the Anthony Michael Group. We have the privilege of bringing on leaders and professionals straight from the industry talking about all things talent related. Today uh, is no different, and I'm so happy that our guest is here with me, Miss Melanie Leibowitz. Uh, Melanie, for over the last 25 years, has been leading regulatory and quality teams across the medical device and digital health sectors of MedTech. Uh, she's worked for companies like PDI, and Hampify Health, now known as Twilt. And currently, she serves as the Vice President of Regulatory Affairs and Quality at a company called Prosha. Uh, for those unfamiliar, Prosha is a software organization that is accelerating pathology's transformation towards a data-driven discipline. The company's concentric digital technology platform and powerful AI applications are unlocking new insights that accelerate the discovery improve patient outcomes, and fulfill the promise of precision care. Melanie, I'm so grateful that you're here. How are you? Very well. Thanks, Mitch. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. You know, we've been uh, connected for years, and I've always wanted to have you on the show to talk about your story because it's an awesome one. And one of the things that we've been doing as of late with a lot of these episodes is almost like a mini How I Built This. Uh, I mentioned that you've been at this game for over 25 years. You've been a regulatory quality executive for several years now. And for those listening, for those who are kind of uh, aspiring to climb the ranks, this is what a great opportunity to have folks like yourself on to really hear your story, how you've gotten to where you are and obviously where you're going from here. But to do that, we got to go way back in time. And I love this piece of the, of the show because we get to learn about your formative years. I'd love to know where, where did you grow up and what was family life like? Yeah, so we are going back way back in time, right, Mitch? So I'm uh, happy to, to start from the beginning. So I grew up in New Jersey. I am born and bred in New Jersey. Please don't hold that against me. Um, I still live in New Jersey, so I haven't moved far from my roots. Um, I am one of four girls, so my poor father. My mother and father, again, both resided in the New Jersey area. Um, I went to school in a small town called Park Ridge, um, grew up there, and then I went to college at Rutgers. Typical to most um, kids who are entering college, maybe a little different than our kids these days, um, didn't know what I was going to do. Um, thought maybe I'd be a physician and um, was going down the path of a science. So I studied biology and realized that being a physician wasn't like it was it appeared to be on ER or Grey's Anatomy. Um, so it wasn't necessarily what was for me. Um, so I graduated Rutgers with a biology degree and then went, what's next? Um, and didn't quite know what to do next. Um, at the I'm going to stop you right there. I, I want to keep that carrot because I want to go back. So you're one of four girls. I am one of four girls. Wow, I'm one of three boys and I thought that was a lot. So uh, where do you fall in the pecking order? So I am the second born. My um, sister is a year older than me, actually 14 months. What we used to say every time we would go out is we were twins 14 months apart. Um, so clearly that isn't true. Um, so no pregnancy has gone on for that long. Thank goodness. Yes. Um, so ultimately, um, I am the second born. And then I have a younger sister who is yes. four years younger. And then the younger sister who is four years 
younger than that. So, um, yes, ultimately being like the firstborn, since we were so close in age, we did everything together. Um, but I am the secondborn. Okay, right on. And so you grew up in New Jersey. What was what did you do outside of class? What held your interest growing up? So very different than it is now. I was a bit of a tomboy. I spent a lot of time outside, um, rode my bike, um, hung out with friends, climbed every tree I could, um, truly was a daredevil. Clearly very different than the career choice I've made. Um, but I was very much into proving I could do whatever I was told I couldn't and being outside and really exploring um, with friends around areas around where I lived and being basically um, a tomboy for quite some time. Did you, Were you into sports or music or anything that was... Uh... I did play a few sports. Um, so I did letter in high school. Um, I did play tennis um, and I did play volleyball. Um, typical as I also look at my kids, my parents looked at it from a standpoint of you try everything and see what you get at um, and then gravitate to what you actually excel at. So I did try softball. I was that one out in the field and said, please don't hit it to me. Please don't. Um, so I spent a lot of time um, trying to not catch the ball. Yeah. Um, I did try basketball which also was not my forte. Uh, I did try soccer. I'm not a runner. Um, so not something I truly loved. But I did gravitate to tennis. Uh, my uncle is a tennis pro, so I was able to work with him and improve my game. And volleyball, I was tall. Um, so I was one of the taller kids um, in school. So I was able to play the net. So that was something that I did gravitated to as well. Right on. And good for you. I, I, that's how I'm trying to raise my kids too. It's like, it's okay if you don't like it, but if you don't try, how are you, how are you going to know if you don't? Right. And so Correct. I appreciate the trial and error. You know, fast forward, you mentioned you went off to school, you majored in biology, you realized, oh geez, I don't want to be a physician like I thought I did. And I love your, what you said about, this is not like the reality shows. This is not what I thought it was. Recently, you know, when I say recently, I'm, I'm being pretty, um, liberal with that term, these programs have come out with masters in regulatory and stuff like that. But there's everybody's got their own story, how somebody comes out of school and ends up in one way, shape or form in regulatory or quality. And I love it because very, 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 very few people go to school and say, this is what I'm going to do. Right. So what's your story? How'd you get into this? I fell into it. So <laughs> it wasn't that I was pre-calculated in any way. Um, and knowing me and the planner that I am and the pre-calculated items that I like to do as a regulatory and quality professional, I'm a little ironic that I fell into it. Um, but that's pretty much what happened. So when I left um, college, I had a bachelor's in biology and said, what do you do with that? Um, so what I ended up doing is I started working in some temporary roles um, through a consulting company and actually worked as a microbiologist. So I got my start as a microbiologist and started working in companies and realizing that there was this whole world of quality and regulatory that I honestly didn't know existed, um, didn't not talk about it in any of my time in school, whether it be in high school or in college or even some graduate work that I did. It just wasn't something that was on the forefront. Um, and when you work for a company and they have a laboratory that is doing quality control and you're a microbiologist, you learn what quality is. You learn what companies are required to do um, and you learn that this is an important role. And again, had no understanding of what that was in college, nor did I have a career path. I just happened to apply for a position that was doing quality control as a microbiologist. And from there, I learned what quality and regulatory was. Wow. And so what, what about it 
continue to keep your interest to where you wanted to kind of continue to pursue your career down that path? So when, after I'd done some contracting work, I was lucky enough to um, actually land a permanent role in a company um, called PDI that is currently in New Jersey and also headquartered in Orangeburg, New York. And in that, when I had that opportunity um, to be a microbiologist in a quality control laboratory, I quickly was given opportunities to do more. Um, and call it luck or call it circumstance, um, the director of the laboratory um, left and FJ walked in and somebody needed to be able to oversee FJ's questions and the process to ensure that the company fared well through one of many FDA audits at that facility have had. So partially circumstance where I was put into a role of more responsibility um, and in essence during an FJ audit um, was the first real, okay, this is what quality and regulatory is. This is what quality and regulatory does. And this is why it's so important. But it really was in an instance where there was no chance for mistakes. Um, it was learned by fire. And that is, from my career and from, you know, my experience, the best way to learn. There is no out. There is no other option. And, you know, really have to be successful um, because the company is counting on it and it's when it counts. So that was an amazing opportunity. Yeah, it seems like because of happenstance, you were kind of right place, right time and realized, wow, I really like this. So do you, do you truly like the pressure, do you like being under fire like that? Where it's like, look, it's go time. I do. So as I mentioned, when I was younger, I was a little bit of a rebellious kid trying to figure out how things work, trying to figure out where I could push my boundaries. Um, that is my nature. I am not a risk adverse um, individual. I do like to be um, in the hot seat, if you will. I do like to learn as much as I do like to push back. Um, so they also they talk about as you look at some of the leadership opportunities and, they, and leadership programs, they say Leaders are born um, and leaders are made. I've spent my childhood leading others, um, whether it be my family or friends and pushing up boundaries. And you see the same thing in a career perspective. I will always take that opportunity to be on the forefront and to lead and to be able to be in the hot seat. So let's talk more about that because a lot of this, it seems like it's DNA, but a lot of it also is um, the experiences that you've had. Can you look to certain experiences or milestones where you felt like you had the confidence or the right skill set to become an executive? So yes, there are. So again, I'm a firm believer in your experiences are what make you the person you are. Um, so there are traits that you're born with and there are traits that you develop. And being young um, in a company like PDI, where I was given um, increasing responsibility basically every year and being able to tackle new challenges um, and being able to work with people who've been there and done that. So I did have the opportunity to work with Bob Reichman, um, who was a mentor of mine, who was a very seasoned quality executive and was able to pretty much take me under his wing um, to teach me things that I may not have learned in school or realized or just the political arena, right? So quality regulatory isn't about just the technical. As you move up the ranks, it's also about the political. It's also about selling what the team does. Um, and ensuring that they get the support that's necessary for the team to be successful. Um, so he was a very good mentor on teaching me things that he had learned from his past lives or things that he found successful in the company we were working together at. Um, so that truly helped me feel ready um, to continue to just take the next step. 
into an executive leadership um, role and to be able to feel confident in the skills that were necessary to navigate. PDI is a difficult company um, as it relates to a variety of different product lines and multiple different requirements. Um, and it's where I grew up. And that ends up being challenging because there was such a depth and breadth of requirements associated with cosmetic products that they made to new drug application products that were the most strict um, regulatory standards that they were about that were applicable to their types of products. So having some mentors, having the ability to feel confident because there was somebody you could talk to about some decisions and having a team. I typically, as I look at my career and the way that I work, um, I always have some very close confidants and I have a bunch of colleagues that I can always um, bounce ideas at, which has really helped me feel more confident in an executive role. You know, you've mentioned, you know, some of the, the traits that you have DNA-wise, some of the things that you can learn and, you know, learn on the job. And what I'm trying to get at with you is that there's people who aspire to become an executive and they don't make it and they get kind of capped up, cat. Um, they hit a ceiling. And then there's other people who either continue to break through ceilings and create new ceilings, right, that they're reaching for, or it doesn't seem to be a ceiling. What do you think is the difference? What, why is somebody cut out to be a VP and others who seem sharp, but they continue to get passed over? What do you think the difference is? So from a value regulatory perspective, it typically is business acumen. Um, so there are a ton of people who are excellent technical team members. They understand the regulations like the back of their hands. They are able to recite um, what is required. They do a really good job of putting together a submission. They also are excellent at being in front of FDA and notified body, whomever it might be, um, to be able to defend the company's position. They are really good, potentially individual contributors, potentially managers of a small team, but they're really technically savvy. What makes the difference for an executive is really going beyond the technical and being able to have the soft skills. And in regulatory and quality, maybe more than some other disciplines, it's really about being able to articulate a position well so that executives can understand what the risks are, what the challenges are, what the options are, and what the impact to the business is, and to be able to be communicating in a way that is decisive, confident, and clear, and being able to sell that position. And a lot of that comes down to the ability to have soft skills and not get completely bogged down by the details. It is difficult for many regulatory and quality people to move from details to bigger picture and how to frame the regulatory and quality job or the regulatory and quality responsibilities in a business forward way. And that is really what allows people to move to the next level. It's about being collaborative and being able to be seen as part of the business and not as technical people who are bringing challenges without truly bring a solution that the business can understand. And that allows the individual to go to the next level. Not everybody wants to do that. And not everybody has the skill set to do that. What's your recommendation on how to build that skill set? That it's one thing to learn the technical piece, right? It seems very clear cut. It seems like you understand the technical regulation or the, you know, compliance, you understand submissions, you understand equality or you don't. And, but there's a way to learn it that's a pretty straight arrow of how to learn. What about this other piece? So there's a few recommendations, but there's one that I think works the best. Just get yourself a mentor. 
um, get somebody in the field who's been there and done that and work with him and her to understand how do you position yourself? How do you communicate? Is there challenges in the style that you're presenting that could potentially not get your message across to an executive? Um, is that what's preventing you from moving? There also are opportunities to take storytelling classes to be able to understand how do you pitch? How do you actually say something, an elevator pitch in five seconds um, to get your point across. It, that's super helpful for regulatory quality. And in the former lives, in some of my former roles, that was something I pushed for all of my team to do, um, was to take a storytelling class and realize how important it is to position something so someone hears you. But what helps, so that's a small class and it doesn't have as much of an impact as working with somebody who's been there and done that. It can work with you maybe on a monthly basis, maybe on a weekly basis to continue to help define those skill sets. The other thing that's super important is you need to understand your style. You need to understand who you are. You need to understand where your strengths and where your your weaknesses are. And once you understand that, you can develop them better mm -hmm. and know where you may have blind sides on a lot of the, these areas. What I typically see in quality and regulatory people I work with is they're blind to the fact that their soft skills aren't as well defined as they think they are. Yeah. And the other thing I would add to that is that I think a lot of times people are so anxious to present their point of view because they feel like they're knowledgeable, they feel like they are passionate, that they're right, and that this is the position we need to go, but they fail to take into account what's important to the person that you're trying to pitch this to. How are they thinking? What is their mindset as it relates to what you're doing? How does your job fit into the bigger picture and how are they looking at it, right? And if you can't almost understand your audience in a way that resonates with them, you're almost like throwing spaghetti against a wall or it's going to fall on deaf ears is what I'm trying to say. That is absolutely accurate. Um, one of the pieces of advice that I always give to my team is know your audience. And that's super important. Um, also, the other thing that I've been given and that I also try to abide by is I have two ears and one mouth. Listen twice as hard as you talk, right? So don't listen just to be heard. Listen to listen. Otherwise, you will not be able to influence the decision. So regulatory quality is also about influencing. It's not just about the technical knowledge. It's about being able to influence the business in a positive way. And if you are just looking to make your point because you think you're right, you may be missing out on the why the business may be choosing to go a different direction or what's important to the business in order to make your point. Um, so listening is super, super important and understanding your audience. You're not going to want to speak to a CEO the same way you would speak to a colleague or somebody who may not be as impactful in some decision that you're looking to try to influence. 100%. So it's super important. So we've known each other for a while and I know you from the fact that you've been able to build teams basically from the ground up, right? We talk about top of performance and talk about average, the difference between top performance and average performance, because you've hired enough people and you have enough experience to kind of pick out different themes. What does separate top performers from the average, especially in regulatory and quality? So again, there are many people who are technically savvy. So there's a few things that always stand out to me. And it's really around the soft skills because my expectation, my hope on anybody on my team is I'm going to help them be more successful than they were when they joined. 
and be able to continue to move up the ladder. So the soft skills are super important. Um, so it's really understanding, are they technically savvy and how do they communicate it? So one thing that I look at when I am interviewing is I do a skills assessment. And in that skills assessment, I play both sides of the coin to see how somebody reacts to being asked questions that they may not agree with. It may not be what their regulatory strategy showed them. How do they handle themselves? Um, so when I'm looking at top performers, I'm looking at how well do you adapt? How can you um, manage yourself and communicate? Um, can you communicate up and down an organization? Do you have the technical skills that are necessary um, in order to be able to put the right recommendations in front? And do you have solutions? Are you just going to come with problems or are you going to come with solutions? Because most companies are 100% solution-oriented. I'm 100% solution-oriented. Don't bring problems unless you have some kind of solution associated with it. Um, sometimes that's tough for some regulatory quality people. We see the negative first. That is our nature. We always see the problem. Um, but can you see the problem with a solution? Love it. Love it. And I want to push back a little bit, though, because there's people who are very technically savvy. They don't necessarily have the greatest soft skills, but that's not necessarily what their job is in the organization. Yes. Now, let me back up. Everybody should have polished soft skills because whether you're an individual contributor or the CEO of the company, in one way, shape or form, you're communicating with people. I get that. But what about the people who aren't necessarily there to climb into leadership, but they're there to be a really sound individual contributor. Is it still so important to you, the soft skill piece, or are you looking for more on the technical acumen? So it all depends, a great question. It all depends on the size of the company. So if we're talking about a company that's very small, so lately I've spent a good deal of my career in startups. And in a startup, at Marina, you have to wear multiple hats. So in that case, having a solid individual contributor who's very good at the research and is very technically savvy and can do submissions may not be the right fit for that organization because you do have to wear multiple hats. Um, so you're, I tend to be very selective on talent when you're looking at an organization that only has very limited positions and then that person does need to have multiple skills and soft skills become much more important. Um, when you're looking at a large organization, there are a ton of individual contributor roles. And as long as the individual is a right fit for that role and wants to continue to progress in that type of role, that's a great marriage. But in smaller organizations where I've spent probably the last five plus years in, there it's more important that it's the complete package. Yeah, it makes sense. And I love what you said about the skills assessment and on purpose, taking two viewpoints to see how they react, right? Something that they might not have been prepared for or didn't agree with. And are they going to crumble or are they going to be, you know, thoughtful and kind of think it through? Any advice around that kind of horror stories that you've seen where like, hey, this is what's shown up in an interview and here's some things to think about in case this is you or things that would be like, hey, I threw this at this person and I was astounded by how they kind of responded to me. Yeah, so great questions. Um, I've been lucky enough that I haven't had anybody that I've been totally astounded by um, through through the process. But ultimately, there have been people who are a bit more prepared and people who are less. So if a company asks you to do a skills assessment, put the time in to actually be thoughtful about it. It does give you the opportunity to really show that you're above and beyond another candidate um, and that 
the idea is to see how you think. And I'm very transparent when I'm interviewing, when I talk to a candidate about a skills assessment, I explain to them what the purpose is. And I explain to them what the expectation is of the exercise. So I have been successful in having most candidates coming back with something we can have a good dialogue with and not having something that maybe is a little bit more cookie cutter or somebody did not necessarily put any thought in to the project. So again, my advice is if you are handed something like this, I know it's work and people have other jobs potentially and are moving from another job and it may not be something you want to put a ton of time into it but it, it does allow you to excel above somebody else um it's a good opportunity to truly show your skills and it is a way for you also to get to know the company how does the company think how do you know it is an opportunity to see as i do a skills assessment i typically also do it with other members of the team so that you can kind of get a good understanding as a candidate who we are, how we think, and how I challenge, right? How I manage, how I handle um, my team to push them a little differently, to think differently. Um, it's a great opportunity for the candidate. You know, I'm so glad we, we landed on this topic because there's a lot of controversy out there right now. Go on LinkedIn and you'll find it where people are saying, you know, stop putting candidates through so many hoops. If you want them to do a skills assessment, pay them for their time or, you know, why do you get all these obstacles to hire somebody? If, if they're qualified, hire them, you know, stop making them do all this extra work. I've seen this be so effective, especially we call it basically the test drive, putting them in a very real life situation to see how they're going to perform because it's indicative of what you're going to get once they're on the job. And it's really hard to kind of fake an actual real life situation versus being prepared for the run of the mill interview questions. And I know firsthand working with you in the past, I've seen how effective it is with some of the case studies that we've had people do. What do you say to this? As far as, I, I, I understand your thought process of why you're doing the skills of seven and what you're looking for. What do you say to this controversy of like, hey, we shouldn't be putting Candace through through these extra hurdles? So I think there is a limit to it. I'm not asking you to do 40 hours of work. I'm not asking you to do a ton of research. If you are as good as you say you are from your resume, what I've asked you in a skills assessment shouldn't take you a terrible amount of time. So I would look at it from a standpoint of saying, with the skills assessments, my sister is a fashion designer and she's asked to put together a portfolio. That's hours and hours and hours of work for an interview. That to me is a bit excessive, but I also get her fields very competitive and they want to see the work product. This is no different. In all fields, it's not appropriate. Um, in regulatory inequality, it shouldn't take you a ton to do a situation, write up a regulatory assessment and provide um, your position as to why you've chosen your regulatory assessment in an interview. All in all, it should be about 10 hours of work. Um, so maybe less if you're super efficient. Uh, maybe you can use AI to help you with some of the, the research as well. Um, so ultimately, it shouldn't be a big ask. Um, many of us spend hours researching a company before we interview, and this is no different. Um, so I hear the controversy. I've seen it all over LinkedIn. Um, I think there are things like putting together a portfolio, which can take you weeks to do, that maybe that should be compensated for a few hours of work with a little bit of research that that likely um, not asking a candidate when there's five in the running to do this. This is your top two candidates that you ask, right? Um, so at this point, you're pretty far in the process to put in a little bit of investment for a company that you're looking to be part of that will also give the candidate some insight is worth it to me. Yeah. And with the rate of mishire almost being the flip of a coin, it's literally like 48% something, almost the flip of a coin. 
this is a huge opportunity for organizations to truly make sure the investment that they're about to make in this person is the right investment. And doing this due diligence from the company side, I think is a wonderful idea to, you know, with limits in place, like you said. On the Canada side, if you're interviewing for this company and you're a finalist, hopefully you're still a finalist because you really want this job. And to Melanie's point, you know, to your point, if you are who you say you are, and it's kind of a, uh, a thing that you're used to doing anyways, it really shouldn't take you that long. So I'm with you on that piece. I am. Um, but you opened up another can of worms and I got to go there. You said, hey, maybe help leverage AI to help you with this. Where do you see AI's place now and kind of in the very near future when it comes to regulatory? Because there's things out there saying it's going to replace a lot of regulatory people's jobs. Like, I mean, they're saying it with a, a variety of different jobs, but they're saying that it's going to be trained so well to know the guidances and know how to create these outputs so fast that it really is going to take a lot of the work off people's place that's, that's happening. Where do you see AI, AI's place? So I think AI has a huge future, um, both in the fact that many of us as regulatory professionals will be working on AI products um, because that is the future in medicine. But in addition to that, we are going to be working with AI um, in order to do better regulatory intelligence. So as it sits right now, um, unless you're working for a very large company, many of us are not, and you are doing regulatory intelligence, it is a very difficult item to do and to do well. Um, and I would argue that many of us in smaller companies don't do it fairly well. Um, so ultimately, I see AI helping with that in particular. I don't see it as and there's many theories as replacing regulatory professionals um, in many different ways. Um, but I do think it is going to make our lives easier because, again, from a regulatory intelligence perspective, regulatory landscape, there's too much to keep up with. And right now, we're all probably doing a mediocre job at it. And especially for those of us who have smaller teams, AI can serve that purpose super well. Um, and help us be more aware of the changing regulations as it relates to medical devices, pharmaceutical, AI in particular, as well as um, software, um, and depending on what area you actually are in. I'm not a firm believer it's going to be taking everybody's job, but I'm also a realist knowing that right now, many companies are dealing with budgets that are not necessarily terribly lucrative. So where technology can provide some assistance um, and not necessarily have to bring more people in, companies are going to leverage that. But there's enough work for regulatory and quality professionals that this will actually help us be more successful. Will it mean that instead of hiring and expanding a team, maybe you have three positions instead of five because you're leveraging AI? Probably. Does it mean the end of regulatory? Absolutely not. And I also think, I really think where its place is going to be is that it's going to accomplish a lot, but somebody's going to have to drive the AI and prompt the AI and understand the AI much better than they do today. And so I think our jobs are going to evolve regardless of the industry, regardless of the uh, position. I think AI is, is just beginning and we are seeing how powerful it really is. And so what does that mean for the workforce? It means that we're going to have to adapt, learn new skills. And just like some of us wish social media didn't exist, it does. And it's a way of doing business too, right? And so you're either in or you're being left behind. I feel the exact same way about AI. Correct. And I think that's really well put is that we will adapt to what AI can do well and what it can't. Um, and again, it's not getting rid of regulatory quality. It will change the way we do our regulatory and quality work, um, probably make us a ton more efficient. Like I mentioned, with regulatory intelligence, I don't think we do it well now. It will make us better at that, but we'll still have a role. 
and our role will change a, a bit, but there still will be a role for regulatory equality um, because the AI, as you mentioned, is not perfect um, and it still does need to learn and it still needs oversight. Um, so no different than when you look at AI in medicine, right? There's a concern that doctors are going to be phased out. That's highly unlikely that doctors would ever be phased out. There still needs to be oversight. But what if a doctor didn't get tired and their eyes didn't hurt because AI was able to look at all of the um, all of the the slides, all the images, and not have to be inconsistent or have a bad day? Right. Wouldn't you want to have that extra consistent eye? But a doctor is still needed. No different with the regulatory pieces. The role will change a bit. I agree with that assessment, but the skill set stays the same. So I want to fast forward to your retirement party. Everybody's kind of gathered around there to celebrate you. It comes time for speeches. What What are you hoping uh, folks would say about you? So my hope is that I left a legacy. Um, so it, it's really around. I learned a ton and I was able to truly embrace and enjoy and have a love for regulatory equality because I was part of Melanie's team, because I was part of a company that Melanie was part of. And I realized that regulatory equality are part of the business and how important it is to be um, in the right geographies, how important it is to do this activity correctly, um, and that it is a business partner. And I was impressed at the fact that quality and regulatory truly do make a company better. Awesome. You know, you mentioned that you kind of felt like you've had this innate gravitation towards leadership since you were a child. And then you mentioned, hey, when I got into the business, I was by happenstance, I was put my feet to the fire very quickly and I had a lot of responsibility and I, I kind of got some adrenaline from that and gained more progressive responsibility over the years. People who are listening to this, obviously are going to be inspired and, and look at like, hey, you've made it, so to speak. You're, you're at the top of the hill and top of the mountain. And, you know, whatever you climb from here, that's because you want to continue to climb, right? Any other career or life advice for those coming up behind you? So a lot of uh, life advice. Regulatory quality is hard. Don't let it knock you down. Don't let it prevent you from meeting your goals, whatever those goals are, whether that's to climb the executive ladder, whether that is to cure cancer, whether that is to be able to start your own company, whatever your goal is, regulatory equality is not for people who are weak at heart. Um, it's a tough career choice. It is a comes with ups and downs. Make sure you look at how far you've come. Sometimes it's not always easy to see. And sometimes it's going up and down the boulder that you're trying to push up that hill sometimes goes back on you a little bit. Look at the long game. Look at what your goals are. Ensure that you keep your goals in, in front of you because regulatory quality is challenging. It is for somebody who wants the challenges. If that's not your personality, may not be the career fit for you, but ultimately it is a, a challenging area. So don't get discouraged. Um, world wasn't built in a day, as they say, and continue to persevere and if you're not seeing the progress that you had hoped for, look into yourself. See what you could do differently and where the sources of these challenges are coming from. Um, always look inward first. Then look at the organization and say, do my goals match the organization's goals? And sometimes it is time to make a change. And if that's the case, it's either you're changing yourself to better yourself or you're changing the organization to more mirror with an organization that can help you reach your goals. But don't give up. Um, regulatory quality is worth the fight. And it is seeing your technology 
being used by patients in a way to make a difference is so worth it. 100%. Well, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story today and and for being on the show. I've got a lot of respect for you and certainly appreciate our relationship. And uh, I'm really, really, really grateful for the nuggets that you share with the audience today. Likewise, Mitch. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. Thanks for listening to the MedTech Talent Lab podcast. For more content-rich episodes, log on to theanthonymichaelgroup.com or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform.